0: We're having a family service today, as we typically do on any month that has a fifth Sunday, which would be this month, and today, it's always a blessing. That's right, somebody's excited. Before we get into the Word today, we're actually going to do a, a baby dedication going to dedicate a little baby to the Lord. And so, um, Michaela and Dan Bernard, baby Anakin, in a moment I'll have y'all come up, but I just want to share some things real quick. Um, Oftentimes when we do a baby dedication, I like to go to 1 Samuel and talk about Hannah, how she so desperately desired a baby, and she made this commitment before the Lord that if God would look favorably upon her and allow her to have a child, she would dedicate him to the Lord. He would be lent to the Lord all the days of his life. And of course, we know that was Samuel, who grew up to be a mighty prophet and priest, and he grew up in the temple. Hannah was true to her word. After she weaned the child, she took him and delivered him to the temple, and he grew up in the temple there and served the Lord faithfully all the days of his life. And so we like to look at that passage as what it is to dedicate one's child to the Lord. But today I thought I would look at another little passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Now, Deuteronomy is uh, basically, it means the second law. And what that means is, is it's the retelling of of the Mosaic Law to the children of Israel before they go into the Promised Land. They had been given the law several decades earlier, but they didn't get to go into the Promised Land, that whole first generation. They died in the wilderness over the course of 40 years, and when their children came of age, they were the ones who went into the Promised Land under Joshua the commander. But before that happened, Moses takes the opportunity to Tell them God's law all over again to remind them before they go into the land. And among many things, he says this regarding God's words, regarding God's laws. He says in verse 18 of chapter 11, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. So there's this precedent that is set. That when it comes to the word of God, the law of God, the word of God, it is to consume our lives. It's something that we are to think about, talk about, pray through, share in every moment of our lives. He said it's like you want to have it between your eyes and on your hands. And so the Jews have phylacteries. I don't know if you ever heard of this, and maybe you've seen pictures where they'll wrap the strap around their hand and they have this band around their head with a box with some scripture in it and then they read and they pray and uh, it's because of this verse right here. But really the, the idea is it's to be the number one thing on your mind is to govern everything that you do from your thoughts to your actions. When you're laying down in bed, it's what you're thinking about. When you get up in the morning, it is what you are thinking about. When you're walking with your family, it's what you're talking about. It's on the doorpost of your home. Your home is a sanctuary to the Lord. And that is what fills your house. God's Word, God's praise. And uh, that in a very real sense, is what it is when we do a baby dedication. It is the parents saying that that is going to be how we live our lives before our children. Our lives are dedicated to God. Our home is dedicated to God. Our conversation, our actions, everything is dedicated to God, and they model that before their children so that their children grow up in an environment like that. And they are raised in the training and the admonition of the Lord. So it is certainly a dedicating of one's child. We recognize that everything that we receive, every good thing is a gift from God's hand. Amen. Not least of which children. And so it's just giving back to God what he has first given us, recognizing that it's a blessing from him, but it's also a commitment to walk faithfully before God and to model a life given to God for the children. Amen. And so with that, that's baby Anakin. Let's bring him on up. He can't wait. One time a few years ago when we were doing uh, baby dedications outside, I think it was the Hennings, we were dedicating uh, one of the babies. I lose count. There's been so many of them. And uh, (laughs) I, uh, I was like... I kind of had my hand on the baby's shoulder like this. I didn't think anything of it. I'm just praying. They never let me forget that. I get picked on to this day. They're like, what was with that? Why were you like. And so, anyways, we'll do this instead. How's that? There you go. All this right. All right. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you that you are a giver of so many wonderful gifts. Thank you that above all we've received the gift of salvation through your son Jesus Christ. But I thank you for the blessing of marriage, good godly marriage, and I thank you for the blessing of children. And we thank you for Anakin. We thank you for the gift that he is to the Bernard family. And we just pray, Lord, your blessing upon this family. We pray your blessing upon this young man that he would grow up in the training and the admonition of your word that he would come to the saving knowledge of you at a very young age, that he would not know a life of rebelliousness against you, but he would have a testimony of having served you from his youth. And so please help Dan and Michaela by your spirit to be able to continue to lead their family well and to be able to train their children up to be a great example. And may they indeed be a family who are dedicated to you, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, great. Well, with that, let's turn our attention to God's Word, and today we will be picking up in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Join me one more time for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your holy Word. We are so grateful and excited to be able to gather around Your Word, so please open Your Word to us. Please speak to us through your holy word. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today we begin our study through chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. And something that um, I don't even think I have made mention of regarding this letter, something you probably already know, but I should make mention of it. it's known as a pastoral epistle. So there's three letters that are commonly referred to as pastoral epistles. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And so, uh, as you would expect, much of what we find in these letters are encouragements to pastors, particularly Pastor Timothy how he was to conduct himself and carry himself in the church. And it especially says that in 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul tells him that. He's written these things so that he would know how to conduct himself in the household of God. And so if it applies to a pastor, typically it's going to apply to all of us. Um, Not always, obviously. But I, I just make this point to say that I feel like this text today especially are things that are very relevant to a pastor's ministry But these are also things that are very relevant to all of us as believers. So I just want to kind of put that in context and remind us of that. What this letter is, is an invitation. I've already talked about that. It is a literal invitation and a metaphorical invitation. Paul is literally inviting Timothy to come to him in his imprisonment. In the closing of the letter, in 2 Timothy 4.9, Paul says, "...do your best to come to me soon." For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments." So this is an invitation for Timothy to come to Paul in his imprisonment. We don't know if he came. It it doesn't seem as though he did because Paul's life was very soon to come to an end, and Paul knew that, and we see that in this letter. But this is more than just a physical invitation or a literal invitation. It's metaphorical in the sense that Paul is urging Timothy, calling and inviting Timothy to enter into the fullness of his calling to not hold back, to not let difficulties and fear and trials and hardship discourage him from fulfilling his calling. Chapter 1 consisted of Paul encouraging Timothy to be bold and to be faithful. And we've talked about that. We've spent a few weeks talking about that, the boldness and the faithfulness that Paul called Timothy to walk in. But now, today, As we move into chapter 2, we're going to see Paul encourage Timothy to commitment. Commitment. Now, obviously, faithfulness and commitment are rather synonymous. But I would say, if we really wanted to split hairs here, that commitment is a result of faithfulness. If you are faithful, you will be committed. Commitment flows from faithfulness. Commitment is a manifestation of faithfulness. So, Paul, having encouraged Timothy to be bold and to be faithful, he's now going to talk about commitment. What commitment looks like, and what are the things in particular Timothy needs to be committed to. So, we're going to walk through these 13 verses, and we will look at them just about verse by verse. And as we do, I would draw your attention to the first part of verse 1 here. And what we have here is Paul encouraging Timothy to find his strength in the grace of God, in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's literally what he says. Look at verse 1. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul has given Timothy a very serious charge, several commands. He told him to stir up the gift of God that was in him, to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, but to share in His suffering. He told Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words, which we talked about last week. He told Timothy to guard the good deposit, to be a steward who is found faithful with what has been entrusted to him. And as we move further into this text, we're going to see that Paul uses the imagery of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer to encourage Timothy to endure. Now, Paul is not expecting Timothy to fulfill these things in his own resources. You understand that, right? In fact, Paul was deeply concerned that Timothy could not and would not walk in these things. Paul was deeply concerned that Timothy would not, that he would back off. And so what does Paul do? Paul points Timothy to the grace that is in Christ Jesus Paul points Timothy to the source of his strength and ability, and it is God's grace. Amen? It is the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Notice that he refers to him as my child. Now, what, that, what he's saying there is that we believe Paul led Timothy to the Lord, and so in a way, he's like his father in the Lord. But it also indicates that he is a child of God. He is in the faith. He is in Christ. So being in Christ, the grace that is in Jesus belongs to Timothy. It's his. Paul tells Timothy, appropriate that grace. Walk in it. Depend upon it. Use it. You need it. You can't do anything without it. But God's grace is abundant toward you. You have all that you need for life and godliness. You have what you need To walk before God faithfully and boldly with true commitment. Now, I would venture to say that most of us in here have a very deficient view of grace. I think that there's a sense in which that's an obvious kind of duh, because it's just something that's beyond our ability to ever truly comprehend in this life, the magnitude of God's grace. But I think we have a very one-dimensional view of it oftentimes. We will often say things like, well, yeah, it's God's undeserved favor. You know, I don't deserve it, but it's God's favor towards me. And that's true. There's nothing wrong with that. And maybe you've heard the acronym for grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And that's good. It lets us know that it is God's kindness towards us, God's generosity and benevolence towards us, but it's not that we earned it or deserved it. It came at somebody else's expense. It came because of what Jesus Christ did. So again, that's good. We tend to think of grace only in the context of salvation, saved by grace through faith, right? It was nothing that I could do to earn it or deserve it. Jesus did it all. I believed in Him. That was God's grace. That is true. That is good. Many of us struggle with actually living as though we understand and believe that. But God's grace is so much more. It is truly amazing. Truly amazing. And if you begin to watch for it as you study through the Bible, and very much in the Old Testament and especially in the New, you see God's grace everywhere. And you see it in a variety of contexts. It's used in so many different ways. And I would just like to walk through a few verses just to show you what I mean. Hebrews 4.6 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. And so, we are saved by grace, yes but we can go to God continually for more grace to help us in our needs, whatever those needs may be. God's throne is a throne of grace. What that means is it's a throne of favor. We can come before God not in fear. A lot of times in in kingdoms, in the ancient times especially, it was a dreadful thing to enter the throne room of the king. You didn't do it without permission, that's for sure. And the Bible even talks in certain texts about how you can't let your face look sad. Uh, You can't look forlorn in the presence of the King. That could be death for you. But we're told that God's throne is a throne of grace. It's a throne of favor and kindness, benevolence and generosity. We can come in not with fear and dread, but with joy and thanksgiving. We can come confidently and we can come expecting to receive grace for help in time of need. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But look at this, verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So not only does God's grace save us, it trains us. It equips us. We grow by God's grace and favor to be able to walk in God's ways. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Paul had this thorn in his flesh, and he prayed several times that God would take it from him. But God spoke to him. Jesus said this, verse, uh, 12, chapter 12, verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So that was Jesus' answer to Paul. Paul had some, some issue that was plaguing him, that was weighing him down, that he just could not take it anymore, and he cried out for God to take this away, and the response was, my favor towards you is enough. You have what you need in me, and even in your weakness, when you are weak, then my power is truly put on display. You can't take any credit for anything. You can't say, I did that. I can't say, I did that. I'm a weakling. I'm a weak man. But I have a mighty God and His grace towards me is sufficient and His grace towards you is sufficient too. Amen? Amen. 1 Peter 4.10 says that as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So the word gift, spiritual gift, comes from the word grace. And so... Every good gift that comes from God to us—that's grace. So spiritual gifts are gifts of grace, and then we're told to take those grace gifts and minister them one to another, one one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace that is multifaceted uh, grace of God. So even the gifts that we receive from God to serve others—that is God's grace. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So, there's just this constant outpouring of grace that we receive from God. And we're told in James that if we humble ourselves, he will give us the grace that we need we will be able to draw near to god submit to god resist the devil the devil will flee god gives grace to the humble so we recognize god's grace is everything it's because god's grace that we are saved it is by god's grace that we are kept it is by god's grace that we grow and every bit of that has been purchased for us at the cross Every good thing that you receive from God was purchased for you at the cross. Every answer to prayer that you receive was purchased for you at the cross. That is God's kindness towards you. That is God's favor towards you. And it came at a cost. Jesus paid for it. Amen? And so it costs Jesus everything. It's given to us as a gift. A free gift. It's God's grace. And it is that... That Paul tells Timothy he must lean into. Timothy has been given a very heavy charge. And he says, trust in, rely upon, lean into the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Find your strength there. Are you feeling weak? God's grace is sufficient for you. Are you feeling overcome? Are you feeling discouraged? Are you feeling whatever you're feeling? God's grace is sufficient towards you in Christ Jesus. God's grace is superabundant. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. God's grace, amen? And he calls Timothy to lean into that. And we must do the same. Verse 2, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I would say that commitment, biblical commitment, is passing on what we have received to others. If we're committed to Jesus, then we're committed to the Great Commission. We're committed to handing down that which we have received. It's not just for me. It's for others. Whatever God is doing in your life, it's not just for you. It's for others. That's why we have what we have today, because faithful men and women throughout the centuries have taken serious the command to pass on what they have received. Amen? And that's what we see here in verse 2. Now, there are four generations represented in this one verse. You have Timothy. He has received this from Paul. And then Timothy is to give these things to faithful men who will then be able to teach others. And so already just in this verse right here, you see four generations represented of the truth being handed down from one person to the next, to the next generation, to the next generation. And it has been ever since. And here we are today. Now this is a special verse for me. And I will say... One of the reasons why that is is because I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. Um, you know, my, my parents did the best they could with what they had. They divorced when I was six, and I was raised by my mom, and uh, she taught me a lot of good things. She really tried to instill in me what it was to be a gentleman and to be polite and things like that, uh, and I'm grateful to my mom for that, but I wasn't taught how to be a godly man. I wasn't really taught anything about godliness whatsoever. But when I came to Christ and God began to put godly men and godly women in my life, they are the ones, by God's word and His Spirit and grace, that are very much responsible for who I am today. You know, what was I? What was I to do? Where was I to go? I knew what I desired to be. I didn't know how to be that. God put these inf- these influences in my life, and I am forever grateful for the men of women, uh, the men of God and women of God that He's put in my life to to help me to grow. And so we all need that, Amen. Yes. We need that. We need faithful men and women in our lives who are committed to teaching us to leading us, to pouring into our lives, to holding us accountable, to rebuking us when we need to be rebuked. Amen? Amen. But we need to be that too, because at some point, at some point, we need to go from just merely being receivers, being the recipients of these things, to being the dispensers. We have to minister these things. And I like how Peter said that when we talked about the gifts. He said to minister our gifts one to another. We're not just dispensers of Bible knowledge. We are to minister to one another. We are to serve and care for and bless and cultivate in the context of God's Word and God's church. Amen? Amen. And so commitment in a very real way means getting outside of ourselves and focusing on those around us. Taking the things that we have been entrusted with and entrusting them to others who will then be able to entrust them to others as well. Well, the next thing we see... The next we we see commitment. Commitment looks like um, grit. Can I say it like that? It takes grit, Uh, it takes being constituted, it takes uh, being determined. And there's really kind of three examples that Paul gives to us in the following verses. He talks about a soldier, he talks about an athlete, and he talks about a farmer. These are three illustrations that Paul gives to Timothy as he encourages him to lean into it and to give himself to the work. So Timothy as a pastor, he has to do what he does by the grace of God. It's not easy. He has to remember that he has a responsibility to pass these on to other faithful men and women, I would say. And he also has to have the ability to endure. He needs to think of himself as a soldier, as an athlete, as a farmer. So look at verse 3. There's really three things in 3 and 4 that Paul highlights that a, uh, is true of a soldier. So look at verse 3. He says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So anticipate difficulty. That's the first thing you should take away. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse four no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. That is, stay focused, stay focused on the battle. And then he says, in order to please the one who enlisted him, that is, our goal is to please our enlisting officer, okay? And so, first off, we should anticipate difficulty. Can I get an amen? amen. I mean, I think that, can you, can you feel me on this? Amen. Is it, maybe your Christian experience has been one of just great ease? Maybe you just kick back and relax. Ain't nothing to it. You're just growing, leaps and bounds, and everything just smooth sailing. But I would venture to say for many of us that is not the case. It's hard. It's very hard. There is mad warfare, okay? There is spiritual warfare galore, and we struggle in our flesh, and people annoy us. Not me, y'all. You get annoyed by people, don't you? Uh, God puts difficult people in your path, And it is, we love to learn these things. We love to amen these things. We love to get convicted and say, Preacher, that spoke to me. You were just stepping all over my toes. But we don't enjoy applying these things. And at the end of the day, that's really where the rubber meets the road. What good does it do to have the knowledge if we don't apply it? It's hard. It is not easy. Being a Christian requires warfare. It requires anticipating difficulty and saying okay i've signed up for this i i you know this comes with it and okay let's do this thing let's let's put on our gear and go for it let's get after it let's fight the fight what else are we going to do right uh and so it's anticipating difficulty being okay with that leaning into it why because we got the grace of god Just like back in verse 1, we can do these things. We can strengthen ourselves in the grace of God. I want you to recognize that everything that is in this text flows out of verse 1. Everything ties back to verse 1. Everything that we are called to do here, we rely upon the grace of Jesus Christ to strengthen us to that end. Amen? Amen? Anticipate difficulty. Don't start freaking out when bombs are going off as if you didn't know that was part of it. You're a soldier. There's going to be some bombs. There's going to be some bullets flying by. Okay? Get after it. And so we just need to recognize that comes with it. And verse 4 he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. When they are in the thick of battle, they're not thinking about their favorite videos on YouTube or whatever, you know. They're not thinking about civilian things. They're not thinking about Silly stuff, you know, uh, spats on Facebook or whatever. You know, I, I don't. You know, you know what what it is that we can get entangled in. Uh, Paul says, "Look, you're a soldier. Do not get caught up and distracted with petty stuff. Stay focused. You are in a battle. Your life depends upon it. Other people's lives depend upon it. And so, I guess that's a good point for us. You know, as Christians." We can get caught up in silly stuff, but we are dealing with lives. Lives are on the line. We are dealing with the message of the gospel, eternal salvation, and we can get caught up in silly opinions and things that are just uh, explosive uh, topics, but really they're of no profit when it's all said and done, right? And so we have to realize we're in a battle for people's souls. We have the only message that saves. And we need not get caught up and distracted by silly things that really don't profit. We have to stay focused on the mission because we're in a battle. And we have to remember above all that we are serving at the pleasure of our enlisting officer, Jesus Christ. We are serving for Him. There have been many men and women who have followed people into battle to certain death throughout the generations. And Jesus... He is, our, he is our commander. Amen. We follow Him into the battle. And our goal is to please Him. Our goal is to please Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We do that by sharing in suffering, anticipating difficulty, not getting distracted by silly stuff, and pressing into the battle. Verse 5, now Paul uses this illustration of an athlete. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, there's a lot that could be said about an athlete, and the Bible uses this language quite a bit, but what's he speaking about specifically here? Well, he's talking about qualifications. We are running in a race. You can be disqualified from a race if you don't meet the qualifications, And the same is true within Christianity. If we want to run well, if a pastor wants to run well and serve well, there are certain qualifications that we have to meet, character qualifications. We don't want to have this wonderful message and then discredit it by our own conduct. Which is why I will often tell young men that are aspiring to ministry, you may not have a lot of Bible knowledge right now, but if you have godly character, you can be a mighty weapon in the hand of God. You can have a lot of Bible knowledge and be very gifted as a speaker, but if your conduct is not good, you will be an awful weapon in the hand of Satan. You will do all kinds of damage and destruction. And so be encouraged. I mean, yeah, we want to grow in Bible knowledge. The more knowledge we have, I think the more effective we can be over the long haul, but we can be effective right now. If you have Christ in heart, If you have Christ in heart, word in hand, and you are just surrendered to Jesus and your character is on point, then you can be very useful for God. Amen? Amen? That's a beautiful thing. I love that. I appreciate that. And we can spend a lot of time focusing on, and I'll just speak as a pastor. As a pastor, we can spend a lot of time trying to focus on how to be a better biblical counselor, how to be a better theologian, how to be a better businessman, how to be all of these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, what makes a very effective pastor is being a very effective Christian. Having a heart that is tender towards the Lord. Being in regular fellowship with Jesus Christ. Being filled with the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Walking uprightly. Walking in the light as He is in the light. That's going to make a much more effective pastor. pastor, Amen? Wouldn't you agree? That's going to make an effective Christian. We all want to be effective for God. We want to be useful. So we've got to run according to the rules. Amen? We do not want to be disqualified. Look at verse 6. He says, "...it is the hard-working farmer..." who ought to have the first share of the crops. Verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I'm grateful that these two verses are together like this, because this is a hard one. You have to think over it. Paul says, Think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What is he saying here? The hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. You know, we could just take a moment to talk about a hard-working farmer. Uh, I think there's a lot of good parallels that we could draw between a farmer, especially when it comes to ministry. It is hard work. It's hard work, and it is, there's a lot of faith involved. When a farmer is plowing and sowing, there is a, quite a bit of time that has to pass before you begin to see the fruit. And there's no guarantee that the rains will come and that the fruit will be there. It really is a work of faith. And, you know, if for whatever reason things don't go well and the fruit is not there, what do you do? You plow the field and you plant again and you go on by faith into the next season. And so in a lot of ways the Bible does describe the Christian life, a pastor, as a farmer, a hardworking one at that. But it says that it's the farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I th- you know, I think what he's saying here is that we should look at the fruit and find encouragement in it. Uh, in, in a very real sense, a farmer is going to partake of the fruit of the field. He's going to eat. He's going to eat that, and it is right that he does. There's a verse that says that the don't muzzle an ox when he's plowing the field. So basically, when a ox is you're using an ox to to work in a field. He should be able to eat what's right on the ground in front of him, essentially. So there was a law, the Mosaic law, that said you couldn't muzzle the ox. Um, And so the one who works is worthy of his wage, worthy of uh, his hire. Now, I think that there's a good principle here. There is discouragement galore in the Christian life. There is discouragement galore in pastoral ministry. And sometimes we have to really stop and be very intentional about Encouraging ourselves with what is right in front of us, because there is always something to be encouraged by. And you know what encourages me as a pastor? It's you guys. That's it. It is people work. Ministry is people work, and it is it's nothing less than that. It is people, and a lot of young pastors um, they don't realize that. You know, they have a fire for God's word, and they want to teach it. but what happens beyond that is really not their concern. And you have a lot of pastors who they're nowhere to be found before or after the service. Their goal is to teach, and that's that. But really, the, the blessedness of the church, the blessedness of being in Christ, the blessedness of ministry is people, relationships, growing to gra- together in the grace of God. Amen? Amen. And so, uh, looking around at what God is doing in our lives individually, the fruit that God is bringing about in your life, looking at the fruit that God is bringing about corporately as we see relationships growing and building, it's a beautiful thing, and we need to encourage ourselves in those things. I suppose there's a number of ways that we could look at that verse and a number of applications that could be made, and that's why Paul says to think over what I say And that the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let me just make one observation about verse 7. I think that this strikes a really good balance when it comes to Bible study. We want God to just give us revelation. Uh, We would love that. My my bibliology professor, he was like, "We, we tend towards laziness. And we just want God to drop stuff in our head. And there's a lot of people that that's their M.O. It's always God told me this, God told me that. But we are told to think deeply upon these things. Think deeply upon the Word of God. Think deeply upon what has been revealed to us. And guess what? God will give us understanding. So there really is this cooperative effort. There is this cooperation that happens when it comes to our study of God's Word. We must think deeply upon the things that have been given to us, but we must also be dependent upon God giving us illumination and understanding of what has been given to us. Now, this is an important word for pastors, for aspiring pastors, for myself. We have to think deeply. We need to think deeply upon these things. Pastors are supposed to be resident theologians. I need to know the Word, and I need to be able to rightly exposit and share the Word with you. And we need to be a people who think deeply and love God with our minds. It can be all sentimental. It can be all heart. It can be all heart and no head. Um, And that's, that's bad. That is bad. Now, it can be all head and no heart, and we can be full of Bible knowledge but be very unkind, very unloving. That's not good either. But make no mistake... If we are committed to God and committed to faithful service, then we have to be willing to think deeply upon what God has delivered to us, seeking humbly for God to give us understanding in these things. Amen? Look at verses 8 and 9. Commitment means prioritizing. Remembering the main things. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. It's easy to forget the gospel, folks. It is easy to forget. It's easy to think that that's entry level. We're into the faith now. We believe. Now let's get on to the deeper things. That's a big mistake. So I try to preach the gospel every single week. And I'm not just preaching the gospel in here uh, just for the people that don't know Jesus. And for the rest of the Christians, y'all can just check out for a little while. That's, That's not what that is. We need to be reminded all the time of the good news. Amen? Our hearts need to be stirred afresh in what Jesus Christ has done for us at the cross through His death and resurrection. That's why Paul said that as often as we partake of the Lord's table, we are doing this, uh, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We need to constantly remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel and give Jesus thanks for it. He's worthy to be thanked every single day from here throughout eternity for what He has accomplished on our behalf. So the gospel is of first importance. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you that which was of first importance. Number one priority. Everywhere Paul went, gospel, gospel, gospel. And so sometimes we have to be reminded. Sometimes we forget. The gospel is the main thing. Amen? God is in the world saving sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ, of whom we are the worst. If not for the graciousness of our Savior, we would all be hopelessly, helplessly lost. But God, who is rich in mercy, who is so kind, did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent His only Son, His one and only Son, to be a perfect law keeper. And yet, at the same time, to die a sinner's death, a rebel's death, in our place, on our behalf so that we could know the forgiveness of God, so that the righteousness of Christ would become our righteousness. God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He became accursed so that we would receive Christ's righteousness in His place, and we would be made children, sons and daughters of God. That's the good news of the Gospel, amen? That's that's everything. And Paul tells Timothy, don't forget it. Don't forget it. And he says... I suffer for this, which is why I'm bound as a criminal, but the Word is not bound. This is another reminder to Timothy. The Word is powerful. The Word is living. The Word is sharp. The Word is capable of doing the work. You just have to open the cage and let the tiger out. Amen? That's what we got to do. Sometimes we can get discouraged. If it were up to me to change somebody, forget it. But it's not. It's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God's grace. And it is not bound. They've been trying for a long time to stamp out the Word of God to no avail. It cannot be done. The Word of God cannot be stopped. Amen. The Word of God continues on. Lives are still being saved all around the world all the time. The church is still growing, God's kingdom is still advancing. Amen. The gospel is still going forth and the Word of God is not bound. And so we need to remember that. A commitment to the gospel and to the power of God's Word. Verse 10, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. A commitment to others. Faithfulness results in a commitment to others. I've got my card punched. I'm going to heaven, amen. I can just kick back and do my thing. Go to church on Sunday and, you know, that's it. No, no, no. No, sir. No, ma'am. There are others out there who need to hear the gospel. God is saving people all around the world. God is saving people right in your backyard, God is saving people right where He has planted you. God is saving people. And Paul said, look, that's why I endure. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, those whom God is saving. He said, there are other people who need salvation that is in Christ Jesus, and I press on for that reason. Is there any better reason to press on? Man, we've been saved. Now we've got an obligation to press on because there are other people who need to come in. Jesus said, I have other people that need to come into the fold. And so, praise God, He uses us to that very end. God is a saving God. And see, we need to have that kind of boldness. We need to have that kind of confidence. God can save. God will save. God is saving. Consider the price that He paid. Consider what He gave. Do you think He's going to be stingy in salvation? No, nope, nope, nope. He is a God who desires to save. He came to save, amen? And He wants to use us to that very end. And Paul said, I endure for that very reason, and we should too. Look at verses 11 through 13 with me. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And so commitment means endurance. If we are committed, we will persevere. We will endure to the end. He says that if we have died, then we will live. That is to say that if we have trusted Christ for salvation, the Bible says you have died with Him and you have risen again into the newness of life. If you have risen into the newness of life, you have Christ in your heart. You have the Holy Spirit. You are united with Jesus. All of His accomplishments and achievements become yours. And he says, if such is the case, if we endure, we will reign with Him. One day we will be with Him. That's the goal. That's the goal of it all. Praise God that we get to experience fellowship with Christ here and now. And really, that's one of the greatest blessings. Side note of the church, you're going to experience Christ in the context of the local church more than you will anywhere else. If you want to experience Christ on this earth, it happens in the context of the local church where we are called the body of Christ, where you have all of the gifts present corporately, simultaneously seeking to minister one to another and so praise God for the body of Christ praise God for the gift of fellowship praise God for fellowship with Jesus Christ here and now but one day we will be with him we will see him as he is and as he is and we will be like him first john 3 says but then paul says that if we deny him he will deny us now he's not talking about a christian who has died with Christ and then risen again into the newness of life and then denies Jesus and is now denied. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you can either be the one who has died with Christ, risen and endures until he reigns, or you can be those who deny Jesus and will ultimately be denied by Jesus. Either way, he is faithful. God is faithful. There's no question about that. The question here is, will we be faithful? Will we trust Jesus? Will we endure till the end? Will we persevere? Will we be bold? Will we be faithful? Will we be committed? Will we endure until that great day? And so commitment to Jesus looks like enduring so that one day we can be with Jesus. Amen? All right, well, praise God. We'll close right there. Let me pray for us. Father, we love You. Help us, Lord, to be those Christians who are truly committed. Not just fair-weather Christians, but the more difficult things get, the more determined we are to give You glory. The more committed we are to walking in Your ways the more devoted we are to making You known to those around us. May we be bold. May we be faithful. May we be committed. May we endure. I pray that, Lord, we would see Your grace afresh. That, Lord, we would rest in Your grace. Thank You for what You have accomplished for us. I pray, Lord, that we would also press in and pursue holiness and pursue Christlikeness and pursue serving you in the power of your grace. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.